Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. And you're listening to Living the Dream, and I'm Dave. You can follow me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. And this is episode two in our special series called Marx's Textbook, which is an attempt to take a basic introductory economics textbook, in this case Macroeconomics, by Little Boy, 2013 edition, and then use that to kind of flesh out what the dominant understanding of a certain a way of approaching the capitalist economy is, then digging into Marx to say how Marx uh, compels us to kind of think about these things in a totally different way. And I've got to say I'm really happy that there seems to be quite a positive response from friends and comrades out there to this project that people think it's useful and they're finding it useful. So I'm going to try to use that impetus to, to kind of um, chug along as quickly as possible to get as many out of, of these out as possible. But the methodology is a bit kind of like, you know, you read 25 pages of an economics textbook and 300 pages of Marx, and that kind of takes some time. So I trying to keep with, uh, you know, a, a three week, two to three weeks for each episode to come out. So what's chapter two about? It's still part of the introduction, but really what it's about is, and what this episode's really about is the fundamentally different ways that macroeconomics and Marx's critique of political economy think about capitalism in that what they understand how it operates, what it actually is, what it's all about, is radically different. And I've got to say I'm not entirely sure even that macroeconomics or economics as a discipline uses the term capitalism. More often you're going to hear a market society or the economy as the terms they use. And it's a pretty interesting thing. You can think about that, um, why that might be the case. So if last week we are talking about the approaches to what are we looking at and how do we understand it, this is the very broad brushstroke attempt by Little Boy to say these are the fundamental dynamics that we try to get when we look at economics on a macro level. And therefore, we can then, after that, go, go and grab Marx and we go, well, okay, how does Marx look at things in the broad brushstroke as the fundamental dynamics of the capitalist mode of production? And Little Boy starts by um, saying, okay, we try to grasp what's going on by looking at GDP, gross domestic product. And so he signals that this is a complicated concept and he'll look at it in, in more details later. But really what he's talking about is the total value of prices adjusted for inflation, the goods or services made in a certain place within a certain time period. So it's an attempt to look at how much wealth was created measured in a monetary value. And real GDP means that it's adjusted for changes in prices due to inflation or deflation. So as you're aware, sometimes prices might be changing for phenomena like inflation and, and deflation. And if you just looked at things from a year-to-year -year dollar value, those changes in prices might obscure what you're looking at. So real GDP uh, compensates for the changes to inflation to try to use prices to measure how much actual wealth is looked at. 
within a, a territory, how much is produced within a territory within a particular period of time. And he says, okay, if you start with that, this is going to be scientific because you're going to find that there are certain patterns. And because there's patterns, we can study patterns and we can develop an understanding out of that. He says, what you find is if you look at GDP growth over the long term, you can kind of track a tendency, which is, you know, the rates, broad rates that it's growing as a tendency. But if you track how it actually goes, you get a wiggly line that kind of moves up and down on either side of that tendency, which is fluctuations. So what macroeconomics wants to do is saying, well, that broad tendency is the potential GDP growth of that area. And um, what the... Um, the fluctuations are is what's really going on. So you're going to want to explain that both the interrelation of those things, but what's the nature of those fluctuations themselves. He then says if you want to just look at some kind of broad changes in stats, and for this example he picks Australia, he says if you look at kind of long-term figures, you can say that the um, growth from of GDP from 1968 in Australia to 2012, GDP has grown uh, four times. So the economy is four times larger than it was in 1968. He says, however, if you look at the rates of growth, what you find is that there's been a general slowdown. The kind of average GDP growth rate in the 1960s was 5%, but from the end of the 70s into the 90s, it becomes 3.5%. So there's an overall slowdown in the rate of wealth. That also raises questions, rate of GDP growth. And that raises questions for Little Boy as well. So he wants to understand um, what's going on. Little Boy understands fluctuation around potential GDP as part of um, the business cycle. That is, that the economy doesn't grow just in a straight line. Rather, it goes through periods of peaks when there's an acceleration of growth that drop down into troughs, so that's when there's a drop of growth, and then there's a long period of recovery. And he says, well, if you kind of just look at the broad stats themselves, which is how often do uh, these fluctuations, these recessions happen, and he says, you know, the technical definition of a recession, and this is just a kind of technical definition, is two quarters of a year where GDP growth is negative, right? So that qualifies as a recession. He says that, you know, you don't really see any kind of clear patterns about how often these recessions go for, how deep the troughs are, how high the peaks are, or how long the periods of recovery are. But they're very much built into here that this is a normal part of something called a business cycle. He delineates this very differently from a depression using the, the 1930s Great Depression as the perfect example. And he says depressions are very rare, and that their origins are ultimately ones that don't emerge from the economy itself per se. Rather, it's a whole series of phenomena that is happening around the world, end of the First World War, you know, these kind of things that cause a depression. So these depressions, these crises to the economy, essentially happen from outside of the economy. All right, then. What affects this potential GDP, what affects this overall long tendency of growth rate that fluctuations move around. He says, well, aggregate supply is all the goods and services that might be made out of the efficient use of the total supply 
of all the different factors of production. Well, what are they? Well, the supply of labour, and by this he means maximum hours that can be worked at the time. So how many people are there translate in the labour force translated by how many hours can they work? By capital. And by capital, he means basically um, factor, factors of production like uh, factories or coffee machines or anything like that. And then he says the third element is technology, which really interestingly he defines as... Um, Anything as a kind of a know-how is anything that raises the amount of output that that arises from combining labour and capital. So technology in this definition isn't actually technology as I would assume it, which is machinery, but rather the capacity to use the combination of labour and capital, which in this definition is machinery, in a way that lifts output. And he says what you can do with those factors is if you can know them and you can combine them, then you can kind of estimate the potential level of productivity that's going on uh, within a specific historical moment. But it also gives an implication as well that what drives growth, and of course growth is a very much a good thing for little boy, uh, is, the co- is increasing the supply of those things. So if you want the economy to grow, you need to increase labour, capital and technology. But if you can know those things, then you can you know, work out what potentially can be produced by a society in a distinct period. And then you can realise various trade-offs. That if you've got a limited amount of capital, labour and technology, you can't produce everything, but rather you can produce different certain amounts of different things. So he says, imagine two different commodities, food and machinery, and you have X amount of these X and Y and C of these other factors, you can put all of, the, of, the, of those factors into producing technology, you can put all those factors into producing food, and you're going to get all of one, none of the other, and then if you do it any combination in between, you'll get correspondingly different amounts. But they, it's not just a simple equation, because perhaps if you produce less machinery, then you're going to be less productive in producing food. Perhaps you don't produce any food, or your work is going to starve. You're not going to be able to, pre- be able to produce any machinery. He then says you can kind of graph this as a curve, which is a kind of, the, this curve is the, a prediction of possible levels of production. And you could move along that curve more to producing food, more to producing machinery, but you can also sit inside or outside that curve based on the kind of choices and decisions that people are making. So it's possible for production to be low, to be under that curve, so you're not having an efficient combination of labour, capital and technology, or it's possible that you might have another kind of inefficiency when you're producing too much. And this means you're exhausting your resources. Perhaps you're actually producing more than the market can bear. I think all of this then raises some pretty interesting questions about how do we attempt to grasp what it is that determines these kind of general rates of growth, the nature of fluctuations, um, then also if the economic activity that's going on within a society, where it sits on these potential, potential production curves, but also if it's um, you know, inefficient either by producing under what is possible or inefficient by producing over what is possible. And at this point in time, it's not really clear if our little boy is going to give us the answer about where we can understand the 
aggregate amounts of labour or capital or technology actually coming from? And my understanding of mainstream economics is there actually is a bit of a debate about this between one view that says these are kind of extra economic factors and the other view that says, no, there are things that the state can do to determine them. But what we get is not an answer in itself, but an identification of two different approaches. So Little Boy says that mainstream economics is divided by two approaches. One he calls classical, though I think it's probably better to call this neoclassical. And the classical approach generally believes that it is the market which has an tendency towards efficiency and the more economic activity that's left in the hands of the market, the better. And another which he says is Keynesian, and the Keynesian belief is that the market is not always great at responding to particularly fluctuations, and in these cases the state is required to step in and intervene. These epistemological divisions then fit with a temporal division too where he says there is the long term. He says in the long term, that fits with the classical approach, that in the long term it is the market, which is the best best force that determines overall investment and where things are invested. But in the short term, particularly faced with fluctuations, is the Keynesian approach and the necessity for state intervention that is needed. So what are the assumptions that are operating behind all of this? I think probably the most important assumption is that this is a model of economic activity in which the purpose of economic activity is the production of real wealth, goods and services. And money simply functions as a way of coordinating the production of goods and services. Secondly, that it's generally an optimistic view that there is an overall long-term tendency within a market economy Um, to the most efficient production and distribution of the resources that exist within that society. This is assumed on the whole to be a good thing. Real crisis, fundamental crisis that would threaten the social order on a whole, doesn't come from economic activity but comes from problems external to the economy. And I think there is already an assumption here that the encounter between capital and labour is an encounter that is for the benefit of society and mutually beneficial. It's also worth pointing out, I think, that um, for mainstream economics, that the only kind of possibilities for human society are possibilities of the market or the state, that these are the forces that we have that we can organise human society with. And this is a fundamental part of mainstream political discourse, really, that there's either the market as a realm of freedom of choice or the state as a realm of action and equality, and if you're on the right, you support your market, you're on your left, that you support the state. I think one of the things that a radical understanding does, and certainly the analysis that comes from Marx, is to fundamentally argue that the market and the state are not separate social forces, but are actually deeply implicated within each other. The state is a product of and a precondition for the capitalist mode of production. And that an emancipated society is one that 
abolishes both of these things. These are the forces that we need to overcome. I think the fact that um, the left, for a lack of a better term, has become so fundamentally associated with the state is actually a real symbol of its um, degradation and something that we need to question and break away from. Now, for mainstream economics, the point of the economy is the production of goods and services. If we then look at Marx, we find something radically different. Marx argues that the driving force for the capitalist mode of production is not the creation of wealth, goods and services, as an end in themselves, but rather the realisation of profit and the accumulation of capital. That the driving logic that pushes the capitalist mode of production forwards is to take a certain amount of money and to transform it into more money endlessly. And that the growth of the capitalist mode of production is the constant increase in size and scale of this dynamic. Also, what he'll argue is what the capitalist mode of production inadvertently creates is its own, the conditions for its own demise, that it has an inherent tendency towards crisis, that it generates a level of wealth that allows the realisation of a different and better society, and it creates a kind of people that are simultaneously the fundamental source of profit and also contain the capacity to become the social force that can potentially abolish capital. Marx represents this constant drive for profit in a general formula for capital. And he represents this with the letter M for money, then hyphen to C for commodities, another hyphen for money, to, to M, again, for money, and then it's a prime, or for those non-mathematicians, and it looks like an apostrophe. And what this is meant to show is that the driving rationale of capital is that you take money, you throw it into the market, into the purchase of commodities, to come out with more money, and you do that again and again and again endlessly. Now, this raises a whole series of questions. The first one is... Marx is talking about the accumulation of capital. What does he actually mean by capital? Now, remember, for mainstream economics, capital is something very simple to define. It's just uh, some tools or some machinery. It's some things that we use for productivity. Indeed, when I pick up my um, Penguin Dictionary of Economics and I look at it and say, it says, you know, what is capital? It gives me some kind of story that says, imagine two prehistoric men and one produces a hammer with some labour and now that hammer can help him produce further. That That is capital. Well, Marx blows this aside. For him, capital is a very specific historical relationship. Indeed, he gives us two interesting definitions. He says... Capital is a relationship between people mediated by things. And he also says that capital is self-valorizing value. That is, you take value in the form of money and you make more value out of it. Now, I know some people's ears will be pricking up at this mention of value. Just bracket it aside, I think I'm going to have to do a special episode about value and price, but kind of leave it aside. So how can we demonstrate this? Well, imagine a breadboard. With Marx's definition, if I go to the shop and I buy a breadboard, when I purchase that breadboard, 
It functions certainly as capital for the person that I just purchased it from. They've sold it and they've realized money and if they're a successful business, they've realized profit. Now, if I take that home and I use that breadboard to make sandwiches for my friends and family, it no longer functions as capital. It's out of that loop. But if I open a cafe and I take that breadboard to the cafe and I use it to make sandwiches that I sell, then it functions as capital. What makes it capital in one situation and not in the other? It's the relationships of people around the work that's being done and the social form that that work takes. So when I make sandwiches at home, I'm producing wealth to be directly consumed as wealth for the people I care about in a relationship of sharing and giving. When I'm at a business, I'm using it to produce a commodity. I might be employing someone who sells their labour power and then that wealth then takes a commodity that's then sold for money. And if I'm going to be in a successful business, I have to be doing this in a way where I pay all my accounts and I realise profit so I can compete in the market that I'm in. This capital as a relationship between people then takes different forms and moves through in different ways. So we can talk about capital being money that we might buy commodities with to set into production or I might lend to someone who might use it to produce or something like that or, or I might lend it to someone who's going to open a shop and buy commodities. I can also talk about capital as the tools of industrial production. So anything that I need to do to buy a bunch of commodities to then make more commodities to sell. And as we'll see, Mark says this actually uh, covers labour as well that when you're a capitalist, when you hire people, they become capital for you. And then capital can also take the form of commodities, things that are then sold. And these three things interrelate to each other and have their own cycles as well. So if the goal of the capitalist mode of production is to make profit, where does profit come from? Now, we all know that there are multiple different ways that you might be able to make a profit. Profit in itself is just that when there's a positive dis difference between the amount that you've spent on cost price and on your sales price. We also know that there's a whole bunch of ways that businesses scam profits and make uh, profits from speculation too. So we know this. We know there's a whole different way that make it, can make profits. But Marx's argument is that for the capitalist mode of production to be sustainable, that there has to be a kind of relationship that's going on, which is, the, which is the original source of profits for the system on a whole. And he says if you're going to find this, you're going to find it in the re relationship between capital and labour at the point of production. That what happens in the capitalist workplace is an exploitative work relationship where labour is exploited by capital and realises something called surplus value. So what is this? Marx says that anyone who only has their labour power to sell, workers, are commodity sellers like everyone else. And as we'll see in the episode in value, he says that broadly the value of a commodity is determined by the cost it takes to reproduce it. So workers sell their capacity to work, their labour power, 
for wages that cover the cost. And there's a really interesting debate here, and we can go into that, and we'll go into that in the future, feminist critiques and the like, which basically, you know, talk about that Marx at this stage does not, and actually never in his work, uh, take into account all the unpaid labour normally performed by women in the home historically that is necessary to reproduce labour power and the worker themselves. So Marx says that these wages cover the costs of the bundle of commodities that in a particular society it is necessary to reproduce the worker's life so they can live to the standard determined in that society and go to work the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. However, what they sell, labour power, is a capacity of the body and of the mind. It's a potential that is hard to quantify. Therefore, it's possible, Marx argues, that in the processes of production, workers can be set to work where their labour power contributes to the productive processes. The generation of commodities that are worth more than what they were paid for wages. Marx says that if you can imagine a capitalist firm that spends money on technology and, and resources and labour power, the costs that are spent on technology and resources are kind of transferred through on a whole to the commodities that are produced. They have an ex- they're worth a certain amount and over a certain period of time that money is transferred through into the commodities. That's constant capital. That's what he calls it. Labour power, on the other hand, is a dynamic potential means it's possible to exert from workers at the point of production a level of activity that means they contribute to those commodities when they're taken to be sold, a certain amount of creative capacity that is worth more than what they were paid for. This is exploitation and this is the source of surplus value. This means that the encounter between labour and capital is A, crucial for capital to be able to transform itself into more capital endlessly, but fundamentally an antagonistic relationship of struggle that sits in the deep heart of that mode of production itself, that there is a constant struggle that happens on both the micro and the macro level of capital attempting to exert proportionately more surplus value in relationship to wages. And workers, on the other hand, either trying to reduce the amount of exploitation or to reduce the amount that work is imposed upon them. So much so that capital can only really be capital because labour exists. That money can only transform itself into more money on an ongoing, increasing and accumulative basis because there exists a group of people that have nothing but their labour power to sell. It's a really interesting idea that it is something that is both outside of capital, labour, which becomes internalised into capital, as constant capital, this inside, outside, which is necessary for capitalism and the capitalist mode of production to actually function. I think it also means as well that 
we should conceive of the abolition of the capitalist mode of production and the freeing of humanity as actually our self-abolition of our condition of being workers, of being people that only have their labour power to sell. This then means for Marx that there are certain dynamics that condition how capitalism as a, a society and as a system grows. What are these dynamics? These are the dynamics of struggle between capital and labour, and these are the dynamics of competition between capitalist firms. Speaking very simply, Marx says there are two different ways that an individual firm can attempt to increase the amount of surplus value. The first is that it can try to increase the time that workers work in relationship to wages. So that means that you might pay workers for 10 hours, you try to get them to work 11 hours for that same amount. And this is something we can see with a huge amount of unpaid overtime. The second is that an individual firm can attempt, attempt to increase the productivity of its workplace, the intensity of labour, uh, the, uh, the amount of labour that individual workers do, its speed. So it produces more cheaply than the social average, which means that when those commodities go to market, they realise an extra level of profit from others. This is relative surplus value. Now, I should put a coda here that when Marx gets a more complicated view of profit, he stops using that term surplus value, but just leave it there for the moment. Yet at the same time, each firm is in competition with other firms. This works as a coercive law of competition. So as individual businesses attempt to produce more productively, they begin to, through the powers of competition, force everyone else in the industry to take up those new methods of production. So the drive towards technology, which is fundamentally typified the capitalist mode of production historically, has been one of driven by, on one hand, the need to control and exploit workers as the source of surplus value and to compete with other competitors. Now, as mentioned, there's lots of different kinds of businesses out there and Marx really sees that surplus value is not only created in the kinds of businesses which produce commodities. However, what he then says is that surplus value takes the form of profit in a whole range of other businesses. So, for example, if you can imagine a company that makes breadboards, if it has borrowed that money uh, from a bank to start its business, a certain amount of that surplus value will then head back to the bank in the form of interest. If it has rented the premises that it constructs on, a certain amount will head back in the form of rent to the landlords. And perhaps the business itself sells to a wholesaler that then sells to a whole series of other shops. In those layers, those shops will all realise a profit which are slices of that 
surplus value. And in this sense, that for the actual capitalist firm, what they care about is profit. And profit is simply the distance between their costs and their sale prices, or the amount of money that they've lent and then what they get back in interest. However, what Marx is saying for this entire orbit to function, there needs to be the exploitation of labour at the point of production in the production of commodities. Of course, banks, shops, security firms, uh, landlords all employ labour too. And even if this labour doesn't produce surplus value, these companies feel a pressure to constantly get more out of their workers to increase the distance between the work that their labour power does and what they pay them so they also can realise more profit. So even companies that aren't engaged in commodity production are disciplined by these same dynamics. And Marx will also argue that in capitalism as a system as a whole, capital moves from less profitable areas to more profitable areas. And what this means is that there's a general tendency, a movement back and forth of capital that works to try to create, but never really reaching it, because his model of capitalism is constantly dynamic, moving, an average rate of profit. And if an average rate of profit was ever achieved, it would mean that wherever you invest capital, you would receive the same percentage amount on your return, whatever that you did. So if the average rate of profit was 5%, it doesn't matter if you, you know, made breadboards or sold pogs, that it would be a 5% return. But that is a tendency that's never really reached, and we're going to talk about this in more detail. So what is it that means that the capitalist mode of production, which is made up of individual firms, that are driven by their antagonistic relationship with labour and are in a condition with a, of competition with each other. What is that dynamic that unfolds that conditions the growth of the capitalist mode of production as a whole, as a totality? And whilst I said before, for the capitalist mode of production, wealth is just a means, not an end goal. It is also the condition that allows it to reach that end goal. So Marx really deals with this in Volume 2 of Capital, which has a number of different things. Firstly, he says that we can think about capital moving through a number of interrelated cycles. So we can think about capital starting as money, goes out to the market, it purchases means of production and inputs and labour power. Then we can think about capital moves into phase of industrial production where it get, puts to work the means of production and people to at that point it exploits labor generates surplus value then it hits the market as we again as commodities to be sold and each of these cycles happen in real time they have a temporality to them and each of them have to progress through very material processes and capitalism as a totality is made up of endless amounts of firms that are all moving through this process, that are all journeying through these different cycles that happen in reality and in real time. 
And that's the time it takes from an investment to go through the production, to sell commodities and come back. And importantly, because it's capitalism, to be successful, they're realizing a profit and they're reinvesting and they're growing. And Mark says each of these moments of capital, each of these individual firms, are part of a larger totality and they both condition this totality and are conditioned by it. And what he's really interested in is the interrelationship between one set of firms, which we can say produce industrial inputs, so they might be firms that produce machinery, technology, these kind of things, and so they enter turn the market, they hire workers, they buy machinery from each other, for lack of a better term, and inputs, and then there's another set of capitalist firms that produce consumer goods, and these firms you know, buy the machinery from the first set, and they hire workers, and then the workers from all those firms buy commodities from that second group, and he calls them Department 1 and Department 2. And so for capitalism to be functioning, for it to be successful, there has to be a healthy interrelationship between all these parts. That They've all got to be profitable, that the commodity... Uh, that once some com- capitalist firms are producing the machinery that other capitalist firms can make, that workers are purchasing the commodities from the, the firms that produce commodities so they have money to produce the machines and, and so on. This all is an interrelationship, capitalist firms on a growing and growing scale. Crisis, well, there's two different things here, I think. This interrelationship means that every moment of a capital, of capitalist mode of production is interdependent on the totality, that an individual business is reliant on the smooth functioning and health of all the other firms that are in, to a greater or lesser extent, in that capitalist mode of production, that a breakdown in any of these points can throw the whole system into crisis. This then raises the question of where crisis comes from. And what do we mean by crisis? I think we can think about crisis and capital in two different ways in Marx's work. One is the breakdown in the means of the capitalist mode of production itself, like what causes it to stop functioning in a healthy way. But the other crisis we can think about is the materialisation of a potential for the capitalist mode of production to be overthrown and replaced by something else. And Marx argues that both of these things, generalised disorder and malfunctioning in the capitalist mode of production and the material living possibility of it being replaced by something else, arise essentially from within capitalism itself. Marx argues that on the simplest level of the capitalist mode of production, the commodity, the possibility of crisis is already present. Because capitalist firms make products that then have to go to market and to be sold, there's always the possibility that those products won't be sold. And so that firm won't realise the return on its investment as profit and will go into crisis. And therefore, all the other firms that it is intermeshed with in a net of mutually dependent relationships 
will also be thrown into crisis as well. So the potential is there. But more seriously, Marx argues that the tendency towards crisis emerges in capitalism out of capitalism's very success. That capitalism has a tendency towards over-accumulation. And this means that capitalism has a tendency towards producing commodities at such a level that it becomes harder and harder to sell sufficient amounts to realise a sustainable and viable profit, especially because the drive of capitalism to become more productive ultimately undermines the fundamental source of profit itself. This is the tendency of the average rate of profit to decline. What is this argument? So it says, if you can remember, that capitalism, driven by the struggle of workers at the point of production and in competition with each other, is constantly attempting to become more productive. This means it is constantly reducing, as a general tendency, the proportion of capital that is spent on labour compared to the proportion of capital that is spent on means of production. But if labour is the fundamental original point of surplus value, that is profit, that means as capitalism develops, what you find is that as a proportion, profit in relationship to overall investment declines as a general tendency. So capitalism, as it is being successful, will be producing more and more and more and more, investing more and more and more and more. And as it does this, it'll be saturating the market with commodities and simultaneously reducing the proportion of investment that is spent on labour and therefore the average rate of profit. This creates a tendency towards crisis where we hit a point where no longer sufficient profits are generated, businesses start to collapse, the network of independency falls apart, people become unemployed. Now, in Marx's argument, what crisis does is kind of flush out the system. You know, the destruction caused by crisis flushes out the system and allows accumulation to launch again. But as it launches, what we find is that the antagonisms are even greater because there becomes... um, you know, the players that come out of crisis are firms, a smaller amount of firms that earn more, they're the most competitive, they're the most productive, and these tendencies are launched again. Yet simultaneously, Marx is also saying that the very material wealth that capitalism produces, the high level of technology, and the kind of people it produces, a working class or a proletariat, produce the ability for capitalism to be overthrown. That the wealth capitalism produces creates the material basis for a radically different kind of society, communism, a society of, of plenty and freedom. And because people are put in a situation of antagonistic exploitation with capitalism, that they are compelled to struggle. So this means there's an inherent tendency within capitalism towards crisis. One thing I just realised I didn't mention before as well is that Marx argues that as capitalism grows, there's also a tendency towards centralisation. So as capitalism develops, we find there are less and less players 
and those players um, become larger and larger and larger. There we have our two models. On one hand, the mainstream model that says the role of the economy is the production of wealth. This is determined by the combination of labour, technology and capital. Crisis is either something that is just part of a normal business cycle or something that comes from outside the economy. And then the debate is how do we understand this in the long term and the short term and is there the capacity for state involvement? Compared to Marx's radical approach that says the driving force of capitalism is the production of profit, ultimately the profit emerges from the exploitation of labour. This means that capitalism as a society is antagonistic and that there is an inherent tendency in capital towards crisis as simultaneously the capitalist mode of production generates the possibilities and the people that can overcome it and realise a different kind of society. All right, so that's pushing up 45 minutes, so I should pull that in now. I really hope you have enjoyed that. Um, as always, there's going to be glitches and problems and things I, I struggle with in my enunciation. If you want have disagreements, if you want clarification, like hit me up at Twitter at With Sober Senses. Um, I hope you're enjoying this series. It is taking me longer than I would like to get each episode out. Um, I hope you're finding them useful. Lots of love and let's talk. I was going to say talk soon, but it's really just me doing the talking. Anyway, take care. Lots of love.